If you can open up your Bibles, they'll also be on the screen behind me. You can open up uh, maybe the Bible app on your phone if you promise not to look at the Cardinals game. Um, this is Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with a hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God and my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. These are beautiful words written, a psalm, a poem, a prayer. And they were written by a king. They were written by a king after he made one of the biggest mistakes of his life. And as you hear these words, you realize that they're full of sorrow, they're full of humility. They're someone who's ashamed. And it's a cry for mercy and compassion and a hope that there is a possibility for a future. These are the words of David, who wrote many of the Psalms. David, the psalmist. David, the shepherd who became king. And we've been kind of following these Psalms of David over the last month and looking at the life that David lived and the experiences that David has and the Psalms that are written from those experiences. And what we find is that David goes through a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Last year, one of our men's groups went through uh, the life of David, and I got to be a part of that group, and it was crazy to just read about David's life and to hear everything that he did. And it's crazy that he is considered a man after God's own heart when you look at the things he did, because it's shameful. And from his experiences, from these ups and these downs, these highs and these lows, come forth this prayer book called the Psalms that God's people have used for centuries. And we've been talking about not just the highs and the lows, but the experiences that feel like you're in the depths of the valley, the canyon experiences where it's like, this is the dark night of the soul. We go through these experiences where what do we do with this? And what we find from David is that in the midst of whatever we're going through, we bring it to God. The Psalms give us a language to pray in the midst of our canyon experiences. And this 
psalm is a famous one, one of the most famous psalms. And it was written from an experience that caused David great shame. I want to talk about shame today and how we process our shame. For David, this story comes out of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's this famous story of David and Bathsheba. Some of you are familiar with this story. But the story starts in verse 1 with this line. It says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So it it kind of sets up this this scenario where David, who is the king, uh, it's a time where they go off to war, but he doesn't leave. He doesn't go out with his troops. And at this time in history, the king would always be with the army. You would always go out and you would be leading the army. You'd be leading from the front. You would be with the men. And it says that he stays back and he sends someone ahead of him. So he's already kind of in a place where he probably shouldn't be. He should be out doing what he's responsible for as a king. And one night, he's uh, up on his palace rooftop, and he's looking out, and he ends up seeing this woman who's bathing. And, you know, it's not like every house has a bath back then, so they would go to the bathhouses, and there's this woman who catches his attention, and he says, who is that? And he wants to find out, and he calls this woman in, and he calls him to his chambers, and they lay together. And the story tells us that not long after that, they find out that they've conceived. This is something that where David takes advantage of Bathsheba. She comes to the king. Probably who knows what's going through her mind. We find out that he lays with her, conceives, and now he has a dilemma because Bathsheba is married. When David finds out what happens, he thinks, I'm going to do something about this. I've already kind of made a mistake. Now there's, uh, you know, there's going to be consequences because of this but I can make this all go away by having her husband come back from the front lines fighting in the war that I should be out fighting. And I'll just have him stay with Bathsheba, and then when Bathsheba has the baby, they'll just think it's, you know, theirs. So the husband comes back. David says, why don't you go home, take a break from fighting, go lay with your wife. And we probably, I think that you're right, probably, the, the husband probably thinks something's up, like this is odd. But he decides to not go home. And he says, I don't want to go home because all of my all of my brothers are out there on the front lines fighting, so I'm not going to come home and relax knowing that they're out there. doesn't go in. This happens a couple times, and finally David realizes that there's going to be a scandal here. This is a problem. And this husband, his name is Uriah, is a problem. So he devises this plan to kind of cover his own, uh, cover his own story. And he tells the commanders and the generals in his army to take this husband and to put him out into the front lines of the fighting, where the the fighting is the fiercest, and then to retreat away so that he's left alone. And sure enough, they do that, and this husband dies on the front lines. David thinks problem solved. David's completely taken advantage of his position of power to cover up something that he has done out of lust. Then this prophet shows up, explains the situation to him, And David has this aha moment realizing that he's made a terrible mistake. Not only has he taken advantage of this woman, not only has he uh, lied about it, he's now basically murdered the husband. This is, when you think about like the kind of the shadiest things a person can do, this has to be one of the top things to 
to, to, to take someone's wife and then to have the husband murdered. And you hear this story and you think, this is David, this is the king, this is the man after God's own heart. And you hear this story and it's absolutely devastating. It's stunning. It's scandalous. One of the things that I think is amazing about Scripture is it doesn't leave out the dirt. Scripture doesn't hide these kind of things and pretend like, you know, that we got to uphold this image of who David is and who this king is. No, it, it shares some of the darkest stories, and this is one of those darkest stories. And the ramifications of what happened after this, this event takes place, we find David just crippled with shame of what's happened. It's like he wakes up from the spell and realizes the consequences of his actions. And he's devastated. And he, he writes this psalm that comes from it. Shame is a, it's a powerful emotion. Uh, the dictionary just defines shame as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. I think it's interesting that it has guilt in the title. I would say that shame is actually different than guilt. Shame is extremely, it's an extremely painful feeling and experience in which we come to believe that we are unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. I think for David, he has done something now that in, when we read it, we, we're kind of all disgusted by him. And he's absolutely disgusted thinking what he's done. Guilt is a little bit different. Guilt is this adaptive and helpful discomfort based on something we have done or failed to do. And in some ways, guilt can be healthy because it points us to a standard. A noble heart would recognize what guilt is. Guilt is, uh, we feel guilty for the things that we do. We feel shame for who we are. An example would be, I would feel guilty for, for telling a lie, but I would feel shameful for knowing that I'm the kind of person that lies. Shame is an attack on our identity. Shame is something that cripples our soul. It's something that suffocates us. But here's the thing about shame. Shame always comes from the evil one. It's always something that Satan places in our life. There's a difference of guilt and conviction for doing something wrong. But when we start to believe the lies about ourselves, it can cripple our soul. Shame is something that can suffocate us uh, from within. If it always comes from the evil one, what we find is that shame enters the story in Genesis chapter 3. We all kind of know the story of Adam and Eve. At the end of chapter 2, what we find uh, is that Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. Interesting detail that they put into that story in the creation story. Adam and Eve are naked and they feel no shame. And then Genesis 3 happens. And we know this is the story where Eve, walking through the garden, uh, she sees uh, fruit. The serpent shows up to deceive her. Uh, she knows that this is the forbidden fruit. She's not supposed to take it. Satan basically lies to her and says, did God really tell you not to eat that? Like, really, God's holding out on you. This is great fruit. Um, there's all sorts of discussion of what kind of fruit it is. It's usually, you know, we think it's an apple. Um, I always joke with my kids that it's a tomato because... I think Satan convinced her that it wasn't a fruit so she could eat it. That's a terrible joke. Um, but we find that she does take the fruit, and she indulges. And then Adam shows up, and he takes the fruit and indulges. And then they realize that they're naked. They have this moment where all of a sudden they don't feel right about who they are. 
And we talk about this as like the, the breaking of the world or the fall of mankind. And we say this is where sin entered the story, but we very rarely talk about this is where shame enters the story of humankind. The ramifications of making a mistake is, yeah, we've done something wrong, but all of a sudden they start to realize there's something wrong about themselves. Shame enters the story here. They're ashamed of being naked, and they take fig leaves, and they cover themselves up. And then God shows up, and we find that God is asking, where are you? And he pursues them, and this whole conversation starts. But shame enters the story because of these, these people taking fruit off of this tree. And the shame enters the story because the servant deceives the humans, bringing shame into their life. I uh, had a soccer game yesterday with my son, Micah, and Micah uh, had this experience as a, as a child that I often forget about until things like yesterday happened, and uh, we uh, didn't have his uh, soccer jersey. The coach had it because the letters were falling off the back of it, so she took it and was like ironing it back on or something. For whatever reason, we didn't have the jersey, and so I show up to the game, and the coach gives us the jersey, and I'm like, here, Micah, let's, you know, take put the jersey on, take off your shirt. And he goes, can I go back to the car to do that? And I was like, no, let's just do it. Come on, take off your shirt. And he goes, I don't want to take off my shirt right here. I'm like, why not? Like, you've had your shirt off all summer. Like, what's going on? And he goes, I just don't want to do this in public. I don't want to take off my shirt. And I was like, Micah, it'll take two seconds. You can stand behind me. No one's going to see. I'm like, what is the deal? And we went back and forth and back and forth. And I forgot, like, in Micah, his story, when he was like three, four years old, uh, they go to this uh, school called Benchmark that at the end of the school year has this big water day. And everyone kind of like wears swimsuits and plays outside in the water. And Micah came one time before he was in school because Sophia was there, his older sister, our daughter Sophia. And at home, when we get in and out of the pool, Micah just completely undresses and then runs into the house. It happens all the time. Uh, he did that on campus at school one time. And he was maybe four years old, so he was, like, young enough to, like, it's not that big of a deal, but old enough to realize that everybody was laughing at him. And we, there was this, this uh, I, we still remember, like, him, him taking off his clothes and thinking, like, this is what we do at home. This is, it's not what we do at home. It's what the younger kids do at home. <laughs> um, but he, yes, the younger kids do this at home, uh, gets out of the pool and runs around. So he's thinking, this is just what we do. And then he had this moment when all of Sophia's kids, who were friends who were older, were like, literally, it was like pointing and laughing at him. And it was like, for him, the first time he realized, I'm naked. You know, like, oh my goodness, like this, what in the world? And, and so, like, being naked in public and, and young enough to not really know what's going on, but then old enough to actually have this experience where people are pointing and laughing. There was all shame entered his story. And it's affected him to this day. Like, he's nine years old, and, and it's, all of a sudden he has this moment where he's like, I can't take off my shirt in front of people because he remembers this experience. This is what shame does to us. It cripples us. It changes our behavior. It tells us lies about ourself. And like, I'm like, Michael, I mean, you're, you know, you're tall, you're tan, like, you got a flaunt. And no, like, he's absolutely... <laughs> embarrassed to take off his shirt at nine years old already. We have these experiences that, that like, lies start to creep into our life. And that's, like, a, a small story of him. 
when you start to think about certain things that happen that, that cause shame in our life and how much that suffocates our soul, cripples us, tells us lies about who we truly are. Shame is something that's absolutely crippling. When we feel guilt and conviction, it's about something that we've done, but shame is a lie about who we are. And it enters the story in Genesis chapter 3. I've... Uh, I think, you know, I, you know, shame isn't something that I really struggle with until you start to kind of identify, like, all of us have shame. And I'm able to recognize certain things, usually through counseling, that, yeah, I'm ashamed of a lot of stuff. And it, it changes who I am. It changes, like, it's not just that I, I'm a broken person that has struggled with sin. There's shame that are, are consequences of those decisions I've made or things that have been done to me. But it's hard to recognize shame. I kind of read this list about things. Here's how we're able to recognize shame in our life. Usually when, when we're living in shame, there's this fear of exposure and intimacy with other people. We're, we're afraid of someone finding out who we really are, so we isolate, we hide. We can't share, we can't open up. Like this is Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. And number two is never feeling like you do well enough. Kind of being driven by, uh, but uh, for me it's like if I, if I can perform well enough or if I can, you know, uh, be, be, be the best pastor I can be or be the best, like there's this image management that I go into because I feel like I'm never kind of performing well enough in my life. And I'm not really one that struggles with perfectionism, but I'm one that struggles with just image management, wanting everyone to, uh, to think highly of me and my accomplishments. The second, third thing would be you're just devastated by, by criticism. People who have, have shame, they, they cannot handle any kind of criticism. And all of us don't like criticism, right? Like, that's something that, like, it's, we don't, it's annoying. We don't like it. We don't want to hear it. But some people are absolutely devastated by it. They just cannot handle anyone kind of speaking into their life. Uh, any kind of criticism completely disables them. Um, fourth thing would be they're overcritical of themselves or others. And, and Marcy will tell you, this is me. And... and Here's what, how shame plays out in my life. I'm, I'm super critical of myself. I'm super critical of other people. I'm, I'm cynical. I'm skeptical. Um, and I'm an external processor. And I joke that it always drives my wife nuts because I just have to get it out. Um, but, but deeply, overly critical of other people and myself. Another thing would be extremes of bitterness and rage and then compliance with pleasing people. And so this idea of, of people who are shameful, it's... Uh, go through these extremes of being super bitter and, and mad at people, and then within like the next minute you turn around and you're, you're trying to do everything to keep people happy. Uh, number six would be being primarily motivated by what other people think, being a people pleaser. Uh, that that you're, again goes back into that management. It's something that we should all you know, care about you know, what other people think, but this is something that primarily drives us. Um, Seven would be primarily motivated by fear. Last week we talked about fear. Um, when we're ashamed, like fear grips us, cripples us. Uh, for Micah, like he was afraid, like I, I, I couldn't c communicate with him at the soccer game. Like it could not get through with him. He just wouldn't move. He was completely frozen by this experience. And uh, we, we become motivated by fear because of shame. Uh, another thing would be underperforming to avoid risk. We don't want exposure. And so... Uh, we, we just kind of underperform, keep a low profile, stay key. But really the truth is we're hiding because uh, we, don't, we don't have the courage to act out. Um, nine would be self-hate, self-deprecation, uh, feeling bad about yourself, always cutting yourself down. 
Um, we find that sometimes like we, we do this and it's almost like we're either starving for a compliment or we just really have a really low view of ourselves. There's just self-hate. Um, Ten, measuring value by how well you perform. This goes back to kind of the, uh, the, the image management is that we actually put value on, on how we perform. And then last one, rejecting or not associating with others who don't measure up. Shame does all sorts of things and we recognize it that we all, all of these things affect all of us in different ways. Shame cripples our hearts, it cripples our soul, it cripples our psyche. When sin enters the picture, shame comes with it in Genesis 3. And the evil one who wants to destroy your soul will just pounce on shame in your life. Shame is something that's absolutely crippling. So how do we deal with shame? How does someone like David go through this experience that is one of the worst things that you can do and goes through this dark night of the soul, this crisis of faith from it? I think it starts with with this psalm. When we think about the psalm and the power of these words, David writes this from this experience, this embarrassment of this scandal. And the first thing he does is this. He asks God for mercy. David asks God. For, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's this cry for help. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord. We ask for mercy. Here's what God does uh, with our sin. We, we know this story, this gospel story of the cross. That, that, that Jesus looks at the brokenness of this world. And he looks at all the consequences of sin, and he goes to the cross, and he takes all the consequences of sin on the cross, and he sacrifices himself, absorbing the punishment so that we may have life. But there's something else that's interesting that happens with this story of the cross, this unfailing love of our God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This little line caught my attention that that he endures the cross, scorning its shame. Another translation says that it it disregards, Christ disregards its shame. The cross is uh, this execution device by the Romans uh, designed to inflict pain, but also to inflict humiliation. And Jesus goes to the cross, and guess what happens when he goes to the cross? He's tortured, and he's naked, and they hang him from a tree. But he dies not just for the sin of the world, but for the shame that comes with it. And what it means to live as a follower of Jesus isn't just to trust that Jesus has atoned for our sin, but that he's scorned the shame that comes with it. When we think about how shame comes into the world, because the evil one in Genesis chapter 3 takes fruit that comes from a tree and takes this couple that's naked 
And then shame leaves the world with Jesus hanging from a tree, naked, scorning the shame. And David cries out here, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. How do we deal with our shame? The same way we deal with our sin. We're, we're suffocated by shame. We're, we're living our life with shame of, the, the, of believing these lies about ourselves. But we take it to the cross and say, Lord, in your unfailing love, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Jesus condemns all shame, so we can condemn all shame too. To be a kind of people that says shame isn't going to cripple our hearts or suffocate our soul. The second thing that we find in this psalm is that David says it, it takes responsibility and doesn't blame other people. When it comes to the things that, that we're dealing with, the things that we're done, we've done or that have been done to us, to take responsibility. In this psalm, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I think what's happening here is David's confessing, but he's also taking ownership of his own sin, of his own shame, and saying, you're right, this is, I am in need of help. I'm in need of brokenness. We don't see him projecting it or blaming it or, or saying anyone else has caused this. He's taking responsibility uh, for what, uh, what he has done. And I think that we're able to do this when we see ourselves as Christ sees us. And the way that Christ sees us is this, that we're loved more than we ever imagined, and that we're broken more than we ever imagined. But because we're loved more than we ever imagined, the brokenness, we could take it to God, and he starts to repair it. We see ourselves as Christ sees us. The third is to allow God to cleanse you. The allowing God to cleanse you, we, we have this really, um, you know, really churchy words for this. We might call it holiness. We might call it sanctification. But we believe that on the cross, God does this work for us that atones for our sin, that scorns our shame. But now God is doing this work in us. He's working in us to make us what he designed, to make us more like him. There's this cleansing, and this is a daily process that God, we come back to him and we say, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me with a hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. One of the pastors of our other churches says this, that darkness doesn't have the power to define us. It can only hide us. God's goodness, his light, is what defines us. We ask God to cleanse us. We say, God, it, what you are doing inside of me, what you have designed me to be, make me new again, cleanse me. And then the fourth thing is to allow God to create something new. This is such one of my maybe favorite verses in Scripture. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This psalm takes us through these actions of crying out for mercy, 
of owning our own issues, of allowing God to cleanse us and allowing God to create something new. We start to deal with our shame with the cross. The cross takes care of our sin and yet it also takes care of our shame. The things that cripple our hearts, we allow God to come in and to release us from those things. Henry Nouwen, one of, the, one of my favorite authors who uh, I've read kind of a lot, he wrote, wrote this book called The Wounded Healer. And he talks about how, how God takes uh, our, our, our wounds and not only heals them and allows us uh, to be able to be in community with other people who've suffered the same things that we've gone through. And the way that redemption works is all the things that we're ashamed of, all the things uh, that, that cripple our soul, Christ, Christ brings about healing, and then all of a sudden those become assets that we can use to bring life to other people. It says this, Henry Nouwen says, when our wounds cease to be the source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. For David, this psalm, from his experience of doing something absolutely shameful, what he finds is redemption in God. And he writes this psalm that allows God's people to to process going through experiences where we're ashamed, either because of what's happened to us or what we've done. And shame that that so easily cripples our heart and our soul, uh, we release that to God. And then God redeems it for something good. Uh, the music's playing, so it means I should probably end. Um, but I want to end, uh, end with, with us moving to a time of communion. And Tim's going to come back up. And, and, you know, shame is something that, that we all feel. And maybe it's something that happened in our childhood. Maybe it's something that happened because of our parents. Maybe it's something that's happened as adults. And some of us have very kind of, you know, a light burden from shame. Some of us have just a really heavy burden from shame. And today we just want to create space to say, let's come to the table and be reminded of what this Eucharist does, this communion. The cross is something Jesus endured to scorn shame. And as we come to the communion table today, we're reminded that. The things that we're ashamed of, the things uh, that we're holding on to. Say, Lord, we cry out for mercy today. We take ownership of the things that we've done. We ask you that you would cleanse us and that you would create something new. That you would bring about redemption in our stories so that we could be the kind of people you desire. I'm going to pray and then when you feel ready, you can move to communion. We have them on both sides of the room. Uh, Communion for us is something that we invite everyone to if you are a follower of Jesus. We take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that hung on the cross the body of Christ that was broken open. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out, that was shed to cleanse us from our sin, to scorn our shame. And we come today remembering what God did. And we invite God into our soul to heal the things that we're ashamed of. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. Lord, we're reminded of your love for David who did something like this story with Bathsheba. And yet you weren't done with David, even in the midst of how scandalous this was. We find hope, Lord, that in our stories, even in the midst of scandal, even in the midst of things that just we're ashamed of, 
that you don't give up on us. And in fact, while we're still sinners, you love us. And that you endured the cross because you thought we were worth it. We're so grateful for this story, Lord, that you would scorn the shame. And today, Lord, I just pray that you would release you would release us, you would release people in this room that are just crippled by shame. That you would start this healing process. That you would have mercy on us, O oh Lord. According to your unfailing love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.